Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Law, podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Jeffrey Bristol, and I'm a host on the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Professor John Witte, Robert W. Woodruff, Professor of Law, McDonald Distinguished Professor, and Center for the Study of Law and Religion Director at Emory University School of Law. He has written extensively about family and religious law. The Western Case for Monogamy Over Polygamy is a deeply researched book showcasing Professor Witte's knowledge and experience in the field a family and religious law. It traces the legal origins of European monogamy from the classical period to the present. Originally conceived as a brief for an advisory opinion to a Canadian court, Professor Woody transformed this argument into a work that not only explores the history of European marital law, but argues that monogamy is positive for society. It considers not just the legal, but also the moral and religious arguments for this institution. He joins us from Atlanta. So thank you, Professor Woody, for joining us today at New Books Network, the Law Channel. I certainly hope the weather in Atlanta is warmer than it is here in Michigan. I suspect it is, and it's good to be here. And I'll bring uh, warm greetings from the South to you and your listeners. All right. That's great. We'll appreciate it. We were actually up here. We had an unusually warm last week, but I think we're getting some revenge this time. So we're here talking about your book, The Western Case for Monogamy Over Polygamy. And it's a wonderful read, very detailed, uh, extremely detailed, in fact, uh, definitely an accomplishment of scholarship. So thank you. the first thing that I think is interesting is, Usually when you have an academic book, it has a very neutral title. This title, however, kind of stakes a position before one begins the book. And I suspect that comes from the kind of interesting backstory behind uh, its authorship. So I was wondering if you could please tell us how you came to write this book and uh, why does it have such a, a provocative title? Yeah, thank you. I've um, been writing on the history of marriage and family, sexuality, children, children's rights uh, in the Western tradition for uh, 30-odd years. Uh, And on the strength of that work, I was invited by the Canadian Attorney General uh, to give an expert opinion uh, in a reference case, in effect, an advisory opinion that the British Columbia Supreme Court was uh, engaged in, raising the question about whether the traditional prohibition on polygamy uh, inherited from the English common law and in place in Canadian law since the later 19th century, uh, was still, still constitutional under uh, the new uh, Charter of Rights in Canada, under basic international human rights norms. Uh, and my, my task was to sit down uh, on behalf of the Attorney General and to write out, uh, such as I could, uh, the Western story about how monogamy had been privileged over polygamy and what were some of the grounds for uh, the historical prohibitions against polygamy in the civil law, uh, common law, canon law traditions. And so my brief was um, already charged with a bit of a normative push. And unlike some of the uh, work that I've done on the history of marriage and family and sexuality in the past, I thought it best to retain uh, that posture uh, as I sat down to write the book. And my thought was that 
with the emerging issues uh, surrounding um, same-sex marriage and then the other forms of plural marriage that might be considered and were indeed being considered and bandied about at the same time, I thought it apt to sit down and say, well, here's a Western story about uh, monogamy versus polygamy. Uh, let's give each side its due uh, and let's let me describe uh, what the Western tradition has said about why it has privileged monogamy over polygamy to date. Yeah. So what exactly was the, the case of controversy uh, about in Canada? Could you give us a description of kind of just the general details? Yeah. So it wasn't a case in controversy. Canadian law, uh, constitutional law included, allows for, in effect, uh, uh, advisory opinions. And this is what they call a reference case. Um, and the issue in the case was uh, an open question, not driven by any particular facts, about whether um, Section 293 of the Criminal Code could still be maintained. Uh, it had been enforced against um, various um, Muslim emigres, against the fundamentalist Latter-day Saints group and bountiful British Columbia and other groups, but it was not their case uh, that was being adjudicated. It was the general reference question about whether the um, Section 293 prohibition could still stand regardless of what arguments had been made uh, on the other side. And that became an invitation for um, any group that had an interest um, for or against the maintenance of that traditional uh, criminal prohibition to weigh in. And a, a wide variety of parties uh, wrote briefs um, and offered expert testimony on behalf of um, the Attorney General, but also on behalf of a variety of groups that were interested in uh, alternative positions uh, on plural marriage. Yeah, great. That's uh, that's uh, plural marriage and polygamy has obviously been uh, on a lot of people's minds with same sex marriage and whatnot. It's it's actually kind of interesting. My own work, my for my dissertation um, in anthropology, I'm looking at how American Muslims use and understand Islamic law, and I actually came to that question as a result of polygamy. I uh, originally was working in Mauritania, and uh, it's kind of an interesting situation there where um, non-Salafist fundamentalist Muslims uh, do not practice polygamy, and Salafist Muslims do uh, for various reasons that led me to believe that Muslims of the United States should also uh, practice polygamy. And so, you know, that's uh, kind of what brought me into it um, here in the States, uh, particularly my wife was also getting very interested in, you know, kind of these fundamentalist Mormon stories at the same time, which kind of sparked my imagination. Yeah, and I think what your what your experience underscores is that it's it's not a one size fits all in terms of uh, talking about Muslim polygamy it doesn't take nearly uh, a nuanced approach a nuanced nuanced enough approach to uh, both the teachings of the Quran and the Hadith and the wide diversity in the uh, very diverse Muslim world out there uh, on marriage and family and sexuality questions, um, and it also underscores that. The fundamentalist Latter-day Saints um, are one splinter group uh, from mainline Mormon or Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints groups, which have renounced polygamy uh, since 1906 and made it a, an excommunicable offense. So there's division within religious communities, and one has to be careful about um, simply talking about um, all Muslims are polygamists, all Mormons are polygamists, all Vietnamese Hmong are polygamists, and um, I think your experience helps underscore that for um, um, the average reader and listener. 
Yeah, and it's it, it's fascinating because you can see through your description of the history some of these same debates taking place in Western Christianity. It's uh, I joke around with my wife because, uh, like I said, her her kind of interest in the media side of this got me uh, interested in, in my dissertation topic. But she is herself a Mennonite, uh, long you know, long men, old Mennonite family with some distant relatives who are Amish, and I think I always tease her because they have an interesting relationship with uh, polygamy themselves. So maybe uh, to get to kind of lead into that, I was wondering if you could tell us what is the history briefly of polygamy and monogamy in the Western or European tradition? Um, oh, that's a, <laughs> how many uh, hours do we have? So the brief, the brief history is, is that um, uh, the Hebrew Bible countenances polygamy uh, and recognizes that in cases of um, starvation, famine, death of, of one's married brother, uh, and other instances that polygamy is permissible and sometimes even mandatory. Monogamy is the norm. Two in one flesh is the starting teaching of Genesis. But there's a recognition in Jewish law uh, of uh, polygamous options and leading patriarchs, um, Abraham, uh, Jacob, David, Solomon, um, take polygamy as a norm and an expectation, in part as uh, a form of uh, spiritual and political power and, and economic power, in part as a way of um, ensuring uh, offspring. And those patterns built into the Hebrew Bible uh, become the sources in which intermittently in the history of the Western tradition, we see Jews and various Christian splinter groups uh, uh, intermittently practice it. The normative position taken by uh, Greek law and Roman law already in the 5th century BCE and maintained powerfully uh, after the 3rd century of the Common Era uh, is that polygamy is not permissible. Uh, and after the 3rd century, it becomes criminal. And after the ninth century, it becomes uh, a capital crime. And in much of the West from the ninth to the 19th century, it remains a capital crime. Um, intermittently, we see um, experiments with uh, polygamy in the Western Christian tradition. There are certain splinter groups in the first millennium. Uh, there are a few um, um, experimenters in the 12th and 13th century, Anabaptist groups, as you say, in the 16th century, uh, occasional uh, free thinkers in the 17th and 18th century. Uh, Mormons, Native American Indians, Chinese emigres uh, in the 19th century, uh, whose practice uh, in polygamy um, is uh, initially noted and then increasingly uh, harshly treated by the authorities in application of their criminal law. And the um, tests of uh, that constitutionally in the United States have been uh, gave rise to the famous set of cases, six in number from 1879 to 1890, where the U.S. Supreme Court repeatedly rejoined uh, arguments that there was a free exercise right to practice polygamy. The court repeatedly held for the federal government, which had criminalized it both directly and indirectly. Um, the case, there, there are no more Supreme Court cases uh, after 1946, which largely repeat that same provision of 1879 to 90. Uh, and lower um, federal courts and almost all state Supreme Courts have been consistent in insisting that um, the crime of polygamy 
uh, is appropriate to put in place and various kinds of liberty interests to the contrary, including religious liberty interests, have been unavailing. Yeah, and that's that's a, a great question because it, it raises issues of um, polygamy and the changing definition of marriage, particularly in the context of same-sex marriage, which I want to circle back to towards the end of the interview. But one of the things that I've always been interested in is um, is the Jewish path to monogamy. I think it makes a certain amount of sense, again, from an anthropological perspective, that you had you know, uh, Christianity come to uh, monogamy as a result of the Greek and Roman preference for that. But Semitic peoples, as we see with Islam, were practitioners of polygamy themselves for, for, for a long time. So what happens to, does Juda- how does Judaism come to a monogamous solution, or, or does it? Yeah, so it, uh, the short answer is in 1130, um, uh, a rabbinic decree of Gershon makes um, polygamy uh, uh, a violation of halakha. Um, but it has to be said that notwithstanding biblical uh, precedents and early Talmudic statements uh, permitting polygamy, polygamy is always a minority practice, uh, a decided minority practice, uh, pre and post diaspora in Judaism. Um, it is uh, always predicated on the capacity of the man to um, support uh, more than one wife. Uh, in a number of rabbinic interpretations, it turns on the consent uh, of the first or subsequent wives before bringing another into the household. Uh, and it comes with uh, rights of divorce uh, and provision both in and after divorce for uh, a wife who's dismissed. Um, the pressure that Jews faced in the course of the first millennium first came from Roman law, which um, insisted for all members of the empire after the third century that the practice of polygamy is impermissible. Narrow exceptions were carved out uh, for a couple of small Jewish communities, but only at a massive cost of gold and silver paid in tribute. Um, by the sixth and seventh centuries in Roman law, Byzantine law, and the uh, various Germanic laws, especially Spanish law, uh, there's increased pressure on the Jews uh, to abide by uh, the monogamous ideals, both of traditional Roman law and of Christian theology. That pressure persists um, throughout the last part of the first millennium and into the early part of the second. uh, And um, Western-based Jewish communities ultimately uh, shrunk the permissible practices of polygamy, and then ultimately, as I indicated in 1130, I rebuked it as a practice. Jews scattered in um, the Middle East outside the uh, domain of um, Western authorities, uh, including eventually the Ottoman Empire, uh, continued intermittently to practice polygamy. Karyite Jews in particular um, maintained this as a matter of biblical law rather than Talmudic law. Um, but the practice um, largely fell into desuetude in, among Western Judaism. One of the things that you mention in your book, rightly, is that polygamy, we use that term um, often uh, 
maybe overly simplistically, right? Polygamy norm can be divided. One, it can be divided into two broad things, polygyny, the having of multiple wives and polyandry, the having of multiple husbands. But in your book specifically, you discuss the nuances of polygamy within the Christian tradition and indicate that it's not just an issue of polygyny, that there are in fact different kinds of polygamy. I was wondering if you could just very quickly kind of outline what different forms of polygamy have existed in Christian thought. Yeah, in Christian thought and Christian law as well. Um, one is um, what is called serial polygamy or digamy, the parties' um, repeated remarriage after uh, the ending of a prior marriage by death or by divorce. Um, that was stigmatized already in the first millennium and became increasingly problematic in the second, often the term um, serial polygamy uh, or digamy was attached to that. Um, then there were other forms of uh, what were in effect called constructive or interpretive polygamy. Uh, when a party is married to one and engaged to another, or vice versa, when a party is engaged to two parties concurrent to two um, fiancés concurrently, um, that gets extended using biblical uh, prototypes to think about um, the marriages uh, between two sisters um, or engagements to two sisters concurrently, not between, but two two sisters concurrently, um, or uh, seriatim, uh, or even um, um, engagement to one and, and uh, marriage to another. So different forms of uh, multiple commitments, um, concurrent or seriatim, became uh, the way of thinking about it. And there's one other big category uh, in canon law, the law of the church, uh, called clerical bigamy. Uh, and clerical bigamy or, or polygamy was focused on um, the desire to ensure that any ordained cleric who was required to be celibate for the rest of his life um, had at most only one wife or fiance before. And if he had more than one wife, or he had a fiance and an engagement broken off, and then a wife, um, his eligibility for ordained office um, had expired. And when he persisted in that uh, pursuit of ordination, uh, he was called a clerical bigamist or clerical polygamist. There were some clergy that were married and doubly married, in fact, uh, but the technical term of clerical bigamy is focused on the, the narrow question of whether you had more than one uh, ongoing. Uh, marital or quasi-marital relationship. Now, and were all these concerns, these different kinds of polygamy concerns simultaneously? It's, it seemed to me reading the book that there are kind of short stretches of time where, uh, particularly like during the Reformation, during the founding of new communities like Mormonism, where, um, where simultaneous uh, polygamy becomes a bigger concern and other times where the concern really is serial polygamy. Yeah. So the, um, the the throughout the throughout the uh, Roman uh, Empire and thereafter, uh, what uh, was called real polygamy or the polygamy concurrent marriage to uh, two or more uh, spouses, that remained a perennial concern of the secular authorities, uh, and intermittently gets uh, prosecuted, but remains a crime on the books and and. And to the extent we have records, we see that it gets repeatedly enforced. Um, and when there are um, experiments uh, with uh, real polygamy, uh, the numbers of prosecutions increase, but there is a consistent pattern of 
um, scoundrels that have wives in two different cities, if they're traveling merchants or uh, people that simply walk away from their marriage, move down the road and get married again. Those folk always do get prosecuted. Um, the periodic uh, involvement of the church in that comes in the 12th and 13th century when the church is consolidating its understanding of uh, marriage as a two-in-one flesh, enduring exclusive, uh, modeled on Christ's relationship with his church. Uh, and there we see the church getting rather actively involved in both real polygamy and then uh, a much more aggressive uh, pursuit of uh, these other forms of constructive polygamy uh, as well, as well as clerical bigamy. Uh, in the 16th century, um, clerical bigamy falls aside in Protestant lands. Uh, concerns for constructive polygamy are reduced, uh, but there's a real focus again on prosecuting real polygamy. Um, it has to be said from the 17th century to the 21st century uh, in the West, um, it's only the, canon, the technical canon law of the Catholic Church that continues to be worried about constructive polygamy and clerical bigamy. The focus increasingly in secular law thereafter is on what we call real polygamy, whether polyandry or polygyny, but poly, polygyny is the main form. And I, I think that's very interesting. What's happening there? Why is the church becoming less concerned with uh, the constructive elements of polygamy? Well, in the, in, um, the, the Catholic Church remained concerned about it. And I said that the canon law picks this up in its own enforcement of uh, internal sexual morality for Catholic faithful and Catholic clergy. Uh, Protestants don't think that these... Um, some of these forms of constructive polygamy are in fact improper. Clerical bigamy they think to be um, uh, unnecessary and indeed an insult to the, um, the gift of marriage that God has given to all people, clerical and lay alike. And they think it appropriate and indeed encourage strongly clergy to be married, regardless of how many times they've been married before. Uh, if the prior marriage was properly resolved by death or divorce or uh, annulment, uh, a cleric can and should be married. Um, it, it was viewed as inappropriate to be doubly engaged or engaged to one and married to another. But that was viewed as a, uh, a, a deserving of civil sanction, uh, but in large measure, uh, the concern was to maintain and retain uh, the one illicit or valid marriage that was there and to make the party faithful to that merit valid marriage going forward. And punishment, especially execution, was considered to be harmful to uh, the actually properly married spouse and the children and other dependents. Um, some of the other forms of um, constructive marriage, especially serial polygamy, uh, turned on an understanding of whether remarriage was appropriate. And Protestants generally across the board thought that remarriage was not only appropriate, but sometimes uh, a better thing to do than to retain widowhood or, or divorced status for fear of putting that widowed divorced party in an impossible position sexually. And they would succumb to temptation of having non-marital uh, sexual relations. Better to let them get remarried having tasted the pleasures of uh, marriage and family life and the marital bed. Yeah, it seems interesting 
to me that one of the other undercurrents I noticed is this debate about the possibility of celibacy between the Catholic Church and the Protestants, where the Protestants seem, I don't know, we could call it more realistic or more pessimistic, I guess, depending on your perspective about the ability of individuals to uh, remain celibate where, or yeah, remain celibate. They were pessimistic about that. Whereas the Catholic Church seems more optimistic to put more emphasis on the ability of the laity and the clergy themselves to uh, restrain their sexual impulses. Yes, I think that's right. So one of the other things that I was thinking um, as I was reading this book, you have an earlier book, if I, uh, hopefully I can get the title correct. I believe it's Marriage from Sacrament to Contract. And I was, it struck me that there might be a, a connection between these two works in terms of serial polygamy and thinking about um, the increased permissiveness of divorce and the reduction of serial polygamy in terms of marriage moving from a concern, a public concern and a concern of the church to marriage being viewed as a more of a contractual relationship between individual parties. Yeah, and I guess the interim step between that, which is I try to document at some length in the book called From Sacrament to Contract, Religion, Law and Marriage in the Western Tradition, um, what I try to document is the place in between sacrament and contract, um, the sacramental view of marriage in the high Middle Ages, which emphasizes um, the uh, enduring exclusive relationship between the man and the woman uh, in emulation of the relationship between Christ and his church. Uh, and that enduring relationship um, being uh, permanent, uh, divorce not being permissible, the marriage ending only with the death of one of the two spouses, uh, and remarriage being strongly um, um, discouraged and sometimes upright prohibited uh, by the canon law of the church, thinking that an imp that would impugn the integrity and the sanctity of the sacramental marriage that's been enjoined. Uh, Protestants of various stripes, Lutherans, Calvinists, uh, Baptist, Anabaptists, uh, Anglicans, uh, a, a little, uh, but especially Lutherans and Calvinists, focus on the fact that marriage is not a sacrament uh, like baptism or the Eucharist. Marriage is instead a social estate. Marriage is a covenant union predicated on uh, models of covenant in the scripture. Uh, but those relationships are by their nature conditional performance contracts. Uh, and it's important that uh, the marital union achieve the goods that it is created to achieve, uh, procreation and mutual companionship and mutual protection from sin uh, and fidelity and loyalty and all the other things that uh, goods that were ascribed to it. And when a marriage fails in its fundamental purposes, uh, because it can't, natural condition, or because one of the parties betrays it through adultery or divorce or uh, adultery or malicious desertion or uh, habitual cruelty or uh, refusal to discharge basic conjugal duties, um, the thought is the marriage uh, is over uh, and divorce is the means by which both parties are released from their conditional performance covenant uh, and permitted to then to start anew. Uh, and remarriage is the mechanism whereby one starts anew. Uh, and it's very clear that as you move to a different understanding of the nature of marriage from sacrament to something a little lower flying in the form of covenant or social estate, let alone private contract, uh, you open up a posture 
uh, uh, in theology and in law for uh, an understanding that um, divorce and remarriage are natural parts of the process, even if not um, steps that are taken lightly or without procedural safeguards. And because of that, the widened definition of polygamy that emerges in the course of the high Middle Ages, 12th through 15th century, um, becomes uh, much more muted uh, in 16th and 17th century Protestant circles. So I think that raises the question, given that so much of, it seems like from, from the book, so much of the legal action at a certain period of time was concerned with this serial polygamy, what does the historical experience of polygamy and the arguments against it have to say in terms of informing our own beliefs about marriage practice today? Um, the preoccupation with serial polygamy clearly is um, a uh, medieval and uh, early modern preoccupation that doesn't persist in the 19th and 20th century, uh, even in Catholic and Protestant circles. Uh, in Protestant circles, we, we have a um, an increasing recognition that fault-based divorce and eventually uh, no-fault divorce are permissible things theologically to contemplate, and it allows for parties to start afresh. Uh, on the Catholic side, and this is controversial to say, but on the Catholic side, de facto divorce begins increasingly to creep in uh, through an aggressive annulment practice, an annulment practice that leaves parties back in the status quo ante uh, and lets them marry anew not on as a form of remarriage, but on the uh, sometimes reality, sometimes fiction of uh, the prior marriage being null and void and therefore non-existent. Um, so I, I do think that the, um, the tradition has come to realize that marriage is not an idol to be worshipped or a halter to be uh, permanent, locking a person into uncomfortable uh, and sometimes dangerous relationships. It instead is a means to the end of, the, of a good, uh, a domestic good, um, and the goods of procreation and fidelity and loyalty and protection, uh, mutual caring and sharing uh, have to be achieved in the institution. And if they can't be, uh, it's important to give parties um, an opportunity to start afresh. And so given that marriage is such an evolving institution, and I, I would incidentally, as a Catholic, I would I would actually, my personal experience and the experience of my family, I think echoes what you said about an aggressive annulment practice. Um, there have been some annulments I've seen that I don't know that I would have necessarily, if I were the bishop, have granted them. But I, I think there's definitely an attempt to kind of reconcile the strictness of a lack of divorce procedure in the church with the basic realities today. And so um, you mentioned the the same-sex marriage issue as kind of putting some of these questions of polygamy into play. And um, so what, what, what does same-sex marriage have to do with polygamy in our society today? And why has uh, the issue of same-sex marriage um, seemed to open a potential door to the question of polygamy? Yeah, so at the generic level, um, if the basic form of um, the marital union recognized at law is open for um, amendment or renegotiation, uh, the thought is, is that if you uh, consider a heterosexual monogamous marriage to be uh, under-inclusive of the right to marry, and now um, same-sex marriage is permissible as well, 
Uh, and the logic for that is liberty, equality, self-determination. Uh, it becomes harder to resist a next step, which would say, well, if we're pluralizing the understanding of the marital form uh, this way, why can't we pluralize it with other um, forms of marriage, including plural uh, polygyny, polyandry, pentagamy, and other kinds of uh, plural union. And the thought is, um, if the state is going to hold increasingly uh, diverse off-the-rack models of something called the marital household, uh, why shouldn't we just add an additional one? So that's one piece of it. And um, if we're shaking the foundations of an institution 2,500 years old in the West, um, the question is what else then uh, is permitted uh, once that crack opens? Second is, is that uh, since the 70s, indeed in, already in some of the Woodstock documents, but certainly in the, since the early 1970s, um, folks that have advocated for uh, what were then called homosexual or gay rights uh, had both same-sex marriage and polygamous marriage as part of their platform. And in the early advocacy for same-sex marriage, um, polygamy uh, was often a rider in those conversations. Other kinds of um, more exotic forms of, of sexual um, uh, association were less considered, uh, but those two often went hand in hand. Uh, and in the first 20 odd years of the same-sex marriage debate, same-sex marriage and polygamous marriage were the two things that were being pressed together. Polygamy uh, fell aside in that eventual advocacy of this um, for legislative change and ultimately for judicial change, uh, but it was part of the uh, package initially. Why do you think that the polygamous part of that package fell aside? Uh, it's deeply unpopular uh, in the Western tradition. Uh, it was hard to uh, garner as much sympathy for it. I think it was a strategic move that uh, this was a, a liability rather than a help uh, in pushing for uh, marital equality for same-sex parties. Um, there was increasing um, um, difficulty in trying to um, engineer cases or sympathetic uh, legislative agendas. Uh, the people, and I only know this uh, um, casually from talking to a few people anecdotally and reading a little bit of the literature, there was a strategic move made in the late 1980s and early 1990s to simply say polygamy is too old, uh, it has too old of a, and longstanding a prejudice against it uh, that we're harming the same-sex marriage cause or the same-sex equality cause uh, by trying to drag it along with us. Yeah, I think that's I think that's an interesting point because um, one because might argue. Yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. I just finished that point. The uh, the the West's prohibitions on uh, polygamy are ancient. They go back 2,500 years. The West's concerns about same sex, about sodomy, uh, are by comparison much more recent. Yeah, they're a thousand years old rather than 2,500 years old. But it's interesting how big a difference that is in terms of the um, popular and professional stigma that attaches to polygamy uh, still today and certainly back in the 1980s and early 90s by comparison to um, same-sex parties. Sex, sex, uh, polygamy was viewed as foreign. Uh, it was what other exotic cultures did. Um, it was a boundary line between uh, Western civilization and non-Western civilization. 
nobody was making that a comparable claim historically or in the 80s about um, same-sex intimacy. Does that just mean, do you think that same-sex, or polygamy, excuse me, is uh, an issue whose time hasn't come that might come up in the future and that the main arguments that are really powerful against polygamy are simply ones of palatability or are there other arguments that we might make today against it? I know in the book you try to separate the concern for the two and you definitely come down on the side of monogamy over polygamy. So I was wondering what your thoughts on that were. Yeah, so I, I, I do think uh, in answer to the first part of your question that the issue is going to come up and indeed it has uh, begun to come up already. It's part of um, the push to um, uh, the democratization of desire, if you will. It's part of a recognition that um, um, marital um, household construction uh, is a matter of self-determination, uh, that uh, a harm-based uh, logic um, may obtain in some cases, but not all cases. Um, and there is a, uh, I think it's inevitable that in the next uh, generation, uh, we're going to start seeing um, strong um, cases being brought before um, Western courts um, in there are a trickle of them now. I think there's going to be a, a growing number of them in, in subsequent years. Um, the reality is, is that the case for uh, polygamy has been stymied in the post 9-11 world because polygamy and Islam are often linked. And this is just viewed as backdoor um, uh, catering to Western sympathy um, by some, at least. Um, there is a it does not help that the Mormon church uh, has been increasingly strident in its anti-polygamy stature or, or posture, excuse me, um, in terms of um, having sympathy for the FDF, the fundamentalist Latter-day Saints church. Um, but I do think the arguments um, are going to mount. I think the legislatures and judiciaries around the country are going to, uh, and around the West are going to face these things Federalism actually may, in this instance, uh, make for uh, local experimentation and the kind of neo-federalism of the last 20 odd years may, uh, we may find individual states or counties beginning to um, experiment with this in a way that eventually um, trickles into broader reforms. Not sure. You're left with, um, and, and one final thing is that uh, globalization um, independent of um, Muslim emigres and what we now think about them uh, in some of the popular xenophobic rhetoric, globalization is going to bring more and more uh, polygamous communities um, to uh, the West. And it's going to be harder and harder to um, continue to uh, make uh, insistence of monogamy a condition for um, naturalization status as it is now. So the arguments they're left with are, okay, um, tradition, that's not a particularly strong argument, although it carries some weight. Um, harm, uh, harm to women, harm to children, harm to spouses, worries about the harm to the polity by giving religious communities uh, unusual power over the domestic sphere. Those are arguments that work uh, in the general case. They don't always work in the specific case. And when a case comes forward that has no harm, uh, it's going to be harder to press those arguments. Um, you're, the 
one of the cases, one of the enduring uh, concerns is um, recognizing the uh, importance of um, providing marital opportunities for uh, the roughly equal numbers of men and women in the community. Uh, not sure that argument's going to carry so much weight anymore uh, with so many single parties. So that the case, uh, the historical case, which was rooted in theological argument and had utilitarian calculus left to it, now devoid of theological argument and only utilitarian calculus that can carry the day constitutionally, is going to be harder and harder to maintain. And you're left with the uh, harm arguments and tradition arguments and symbolism arguments being um, the only ones that are going to uh, continue to be uh, pressed in legislatures and courts. Yeah, that's, you know, I um, it's interesting. There's uh, a study, I think, that I read uh, not too long ago that was indicating that Senegal and I think certain parts of Africa had seen for the first time last year or the year before an increase in polygamous marriages after a decline of many decades. And Indonesia, I think, was another place where they've seen an increase in polygamous marriages. But it's strange in my own research among American Muslims, I have noticed a, a, a pretty strict bifurcation similar to the lines I saw in Mauritania where immigrant Muslims who move to the United States tend to overwhelmingly be opposed to polygamy, at least the the more educated ones, which makes most of the Muslim immigrants are are more educated. Um, And they, in part because they view it as um, not prohibited according to Islamic law in theory, but you know, there's a, a law of the land argument, and they seem almost morally opposed to it as well, although they don't mention that for obvious reasons, where you do see polygamy in the United States among American Muslims. And Deborah Majid has an excellent book on this, Islamic Polygamy, is among African-American converts who mm-hmm. make the same argument that the Salafists I knew in Mauritania did, which basically goes along the lines of um, – Most people prohibit polygamy through the marriage contract, but the marriage contract is a legal instrument created by two parties. The Quran gives the husband arguably unilateral rights to polygamy, and therefore uh, the contract can't abrogate the Quran, which is a higher authority. But it's interesting you can see these debates happening even here within communities, and sometimes it doesn't line up the way one might necessarily think it would. Yeah. Yeah, so a couple comments. One is the um, um, there are uh, pockets of the uh, very diverse and, and widely dispersed Muslim world where we do see increases in polygamous practice. The, the polygyny belt in Central Africa is a notable one. Uh, Kenya, two or three years ago, allowed for a polygamous option. And in um, parts of Africa where uh, the children are important, uh, to have as part of a labor pool, part of a, uh, a status uh, marker, um, and where uh, high incidences of uh, infant mortality uh, and child mortality are, are a regrettably normal part of life, we do see a greater practice. Um, the difficulty of being an unattached woman in a uh, set of communities that does not have a welfare state, does not have a robust form of um, um, diaconal relief, um, have being part of a, uh, a household is really critical for survival. 
And so there are a number of factors that would suggest in the Muslim and non-Muslim worlds of uh, Central Africa that the practice of polygyny uh, persists and is indeed going up. But you're right, in many parts of the Muslim world where um, especially there is Western influence, but also greater education, greater economic opportunity, uh, a, a less dependence on uh, a labor economy, uh, there seems to be a dramatic uh, decrease in the last uh, years uh, of uh, polygamous households and appetite for polygamy. And there seems to be some debate too in the um, in Islamic jurisprudence about the propriety or impropriety of those couple of texts in the uh, Quran and Hadith that permit this, um, the preemptory power of the Quran to um, override uh, the contract. I mean, you're, it's being preempted by a permission, not being preempted by a command. Uh, and the question then becomes, well, what do you do as a faithful Muslim uh, as you contemplate the marital contract? Um, some would say um, you have to at least build into the contract the permission of um, multiple wives. Others would say um, the con you're, you're permitted to put in the contract the provision for multiple wives, but you don't have to. Uh, and I've, I've seen both those arguments get played out in by authentic uh, Muslim jurists, as far as I can tell them from afar. Um, so there's a um, it's an interesting diversity in practice and belief. The Bailey and Kaufman book on polygamy around the world um, documents a pretty dramatic decrease in the practice of uh, polygamy in various parts of the world, including the Muslim world. Uh, and as you say, that replicates itself uh, in um, Western countries where Muslims have um, emigrated, especially the last couple of generations. Yeah, it raises an interesting similarity to some of the debates over the law of slavery and Islamic law, uh, which, you know, is also abrogated by cultural practice. But of course, because it's revealed in theory remains legally legitimate. But uh, I always have to prevent myself from going down the hole of Islamic law since it's part of my specialty. So bringing us back to uh, um, the United States and American constitutional law, something you mentioned earlier kind of piqued my interest. Uh, you said, and this might be, I'm asking you to put on your legal prognostication hat, which is maybe mm -hmm. a little dangerous, but you yeah, mentioned that- Profit, sir, without honor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. But you mentioned the possibility of, of kind of experiments of the federal experiments, you know, the idea, this is an old idea that the states allow, you know, different, different, one state can have one set of laws, the other state, another state can have another set of laws. And so you get these natural experiments in government. But I think that's an appealing idea. But we saw, I think what we saw with Obergefell was um, a tendency when, you know, a, a natural or human rights argument becomes involved to kind of stamp down on this idea of federalism and say, well, if we're going to recognize one state is going to recognize or we a group is large enough group is going to recognize this is a particular right, then we can't leave it up to the states to uh, conduct the experiment um, as as it will were. So what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, that's the, uh, I mean, we're dealing with a couple of different things. One is um, uh, federalism, uh, what within family law should be left to the individual states to sort out in accordance with their own state constitutions and traditions, and what should be a matter of federal constitutional law uh, under equal protection and due process um, guarantees. And as you know, since um, Griswold, we, we have a uh, a power for new constitutional overlay uh, on what had been an organic process of individual states 
doing their family law reform one by one. Um, in the old days, for example, with the introduction, say, of no-fault divorce, uh, we saw the introduction of no-fault divorce in 1969. I think it was California or New York. And then gradually over the next generation and state by state, that was picked up as an appropriate um, um, thing to add to um, the grounds for divorce. And the um, became a rather natural consensus by uh, the later 1980s. Same thing in the same-sex marriage area. It's not like Obergefell came out of the blue. Uh, Obergefell um, stepped into um, a process that some would say should have naturally gone on for a generation or two further uh, from the early Bear case and from the Massachusetts uh, Goodrich case and others where uh, states were experimenting with civil union, domestic partnership, and even same-sex marriage uh, and gradually beginning to uh, recognize that as an off-the-rack option for their citizens. Um, the natural federalism process would have said, let's let that go on for another generation or more uh, before um, being sealed by um, the uh, by federal by federal constitutional law. Um, some would say uh, Obergefell um, was a necessary catalyst to get the rest of the states online, given the reaction of Defense of Marriage Acts, both at the state and at the federal level. Uh, others would say it was uh, a constitutional uh, imposition on a process that would more naturally have gone on uh, and probably been more widely accepted if it had spent, spent another uh, generation getting state legislatures and state Supreme Courts to weigh in. My own view is that the um, um, issue of polygamy uh, is showing, at least initially, um, the kind of incremental uh, federalist, one state and county at a time approach, as we see in, in Utah now with uh, the Brown v. Berman case that for the first time questions the uh, constitutionality of the polygamy prohibition and uh, in Utah, we're beginning to see a number of state attorney generals who have said, declared publicly that we are not going to use state resources to prosecute um, the crime of polygamy in our states. And we're watching the incremental process again. Country, a country of diverse and, and alas now divided as we are, uh, sometimes the Supreme Court has to weigh in uh, and speak, uh, you know, universal law for the community. It was thought that LGBTQ rights and identity and uh, equality uh, demanded um, that the Supreme Court speak. I don't see uh, the Supreme Court having the same um, agitation toward it or appetite for um, doing the same thing with respect to um, the plural marriage, marriage partners. There certainly seems like there needed to be a certain kind of critical mass in order to push the same-sex marriage issue to the Supreme Court and to general acceptance. And I think it's kind of interesting thinking about the difference between the two. You know, there's always a debate about the origin of homosexuality and it's arguable, you know, or, I mean, arguable, biological, whether it's, you know, uh, whatever that means, um, kind of uh, cause. Uh, and certainly it seems harder to make the argument with polygamy that, you know, there is some aspect of me cognitively, genetically, whatever it may be, that causes me to wish to have multiple spouses. 
Yes. So I, I so I, I, just, I think it's um, it's interesting along those lines to see whether we will get the same kind of critical mass development with polygamy that we got with uh, same-sex marriage. Yeah. So I mean, I I, I do think um, the um, the reality that people began to experience in their own families um, that one that sexual desire, sexual uh, attraction, sexual um, uh, partnering um, wasn't just whimsical, that it, it was rooted somehow in nature or inclination or um, a person's inherited or early acquired habits. Um, that clearly helped uh, the argument for um, a sympathetic uh, ear to liberty, equality, self-determination, uh, domestic autonomy. Um, and I, you're right that there's nothing comparable to that in the um, natural foundation for polygamy. I mean, the natural foundation for polygamy is that um, there is a there is in human nature a um, an appetite for promiscuity that we acquire from uh, our animal cousins uh, or prototypes or whatever you want to call them, and that um, men in particular um, have, um, if unschooled, um, appetites for um, holding, having and holding multiple females at once uh, in a way that uh, data show females don't, although not, that's not true of all. Um, it's hard to credit that natural appetite uh, and add it to the arguments for equality, liberty, and self-determination and have a sympathetic ear for it. It's a different kind of, it's a different kind of natural argument from nature. So the last that question... Felicit- oh. That wasn't a felicitous uh, uh, distinction, but I think what I'm trying to say is that the everybody could experience the uh, by empathetically ex- uh, both experience and, and appreciate um, the, the same-sex desires of members of their community, members of their household, members of their family, and on the strength of that, uh, find uh, more powerful their arguments from equality, liberty, uh, and self-determination. There's nothing comparable to that in experience so far uh, with uh, the polygamists. So with that, uh, we're winding up our time together. So I was wondering if you could tell us uh, whether you're continuing this project or what other projects you have that we could look forward to reading. You're kind to ask. Um, this is, uh, my wife will tell you, uh, as a matter of command, that this is the last thing I'm going to be writing about marriage and, and polygamy. Um, she got sick and tired of hearing about it for three years at the supper table, and uh, God bless her for putting up with it. Um, I have a big fat book in uh, press now, should be out in a couple of months, called Church, State, and Family, colon, Reconciling Traditional Teachings and Modern Liberties. It's coming out with Cambridge in uh, March or April 2019. And that's my swan, kind of swan song in this uh, field of marriage, family, sexuality, which I indicated I've been writing in for uh, 30 odd years. And I'm trying there to say um, that in all our roiling debates about same sex marriage and about um, same sex bathrooms and um, uh, cake shops and other things, um, and removing tax exemptions from religious communities that don't consecrate same sex marriages or recognize them and the like, 
all of our roiling about that, uh, which is healthy and appropriate. What we need to think more deeply about is the whole sexual field uh, and the marital field and to take more a broader view and get out of the trenches of the culture wars about same-sex marriage and think more broadly about the range of things from um, uh, sexuality, promiscuity, teenage pregnancy, concern for um, uh, children's rights, uh, ways of rethinking um, youth formation in an in a increasingly post-marital or extramarital culture, um, resources for uh, education and charity for um, the disenfranchised finding um, constructive ways of rethinking uh, some of the wisdom of the Western tradition, including especially the Western Christian tradition, and trying to reconcile that with the realities of uh, modern liberty, equality, uh, and uh, domestic autonomy, which we cherish and which have been hard won. And I spend some time in the book um, walking through um, Church Fathers, Chrysostom and Augustine, Aquinas and Vittoria, Luther and Calvin, some of the great Enlightenment liberals and their surprising endorsement of traditional marriage and family life, um, looking at uh, a model of um, integrated understanding of the marital sphere, and then walking through issues of children's rights, of um, plural marital jurisdictions, thinking about what role faith-based uh, family law can play in liberal democracies, um, fussing with the polygamy and same-sex marriage distinctions that we've talked about a bit, and then trying to uh, address respectfully but critically uh, the new push for the disestablishment or abolition of marriage as a legal category, um, and then a swan song that trumpets the importance of maintaining a traditional marital family in a uh, advanced liberal culture, even if that traditional marital family now includes same-sex marriage. Well, that sounds wonderful. It's a, kind of a return to first principles, it sounds like, which uh, which I'll look forward to reading. Hopefully we can have you on again uh, when it's published. It would be a joy to do that. I've, um, um, I've enjoyed this conversation. I'm, uh, I'm interested in uh, your story, too, with uh, anthropology and law coming together. Uh, you'll have some interesting work ahead of you, and I'll be intrigued to hear that and see what the uh, your dissertation yields. All right, great. Well, uh, hopefully I'll be I'll be able to tell you. All right, so thank you for joining us today, and uh, I wish you the best of luck. Thanks for listening to New Books and Law, a podcast channel on the New Books Network.